The Center for Thinking Biblically is a ministry of the Masters University. Visit thinkbiblically.org for more information. As we think about how to capture the entire Bible, all 66 books, into one cohesive storyline, there's a lot of ways and a lot of legitimate ways to divide it up. But a simple way to go about it is to think about this. God begins, God wars, God wins. There's always a beginning, a middle, and an end to every good story. And the Bible is the best story. So let's talk about how God begins. And out of the whole Bible, all 66 books, you might be wondering, what books of the Bible will be covered in God Begins? Maybe the first five books of the Bible or something like that. Well, actually, we're gonna be covering one book of the Bible and three chapters. That's right, one book of the Bible and three chapters. And you might say, wait, out of 66 books, you got a lot of ground to cover. Why concentrate on that specific amount? Why do that? Well, it's because the beginning really matters. It sets the foundation for everything. It sets the trajectory for everything. If you understand the beginning right, everything comes together, everything flows right, everything makes sense. The reason that sometimes things later on in the Bible don't make sense to us or we're not understanding why they're there is because we didn't really understand the beginning well. So understanding the beginning is essential. Even more, understanding the beginning well corrects some misconceptions that we have. These misconceptions can kind of skew our Bible reading and also cause us some confusion. And so in light of all of that, we need to get the beginning right. And so we have one book and three chapters. And you might say, okay, is that book Genesis that we're gonna cover and maybe three chapters of Exodus? No, it's actually the book of Job and three chapters of Genesis. And you say, wait, why would you cover the book of Job? Of all books of the Bible, why does that one come first? Well, it's because it's actually the first book of the Bible. It's the first book that was ever written. It's the oldest language that we have. Its currency is ancient. Its cultural practices and religious practices even, they're ancient. It's the first book of the Bible that was ever written. To be sure, the book of Genesis records what happened first, but the first book that was ever penned or written was Job. Put it differently, when Moses is writing the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he most likely had the book of Job. So Job is the introduction to the Bible. It tells you what the Bible's all about. It tells you also, and this is really important, why you even need a Bible. That's what Job does. Now, how does Job approach this subject? It's the foundation, it's the beginning, it's the introduction to all of scripture. Well, Job answers a very specific question, a question that makes all the difference for everyone in the entire world. And the question is this, is God right? That's the question, because if God is wrong, if he fails, if he falters, if he's not morally correct, if he's not holy, then everything falls apart. But if he truly is right, he's sovereign, successful, triumphant, true and holy, then everything is different. Then there is hope, then there is salvation, and then there is the glory of God and everything is magnificent. This question makes all the difference and Job hones in on this question. The way the book of Job works is that it works basically in two parts. There's a courtroom in heaven and there's a courtroom on earth. And if God is right in heaven and if he's right on earth, then he's right everywhere for all time without question and that's the goal of the book of Job. And within Job, we see God's rightness 
in heaven. In chapters one and two, God assembles the heavenly courtroom together to demonstrate his righteousness, to demonstrate his sovereignty. Satan doesn't instigate anything. God actually instigates all things. In fact, it's really fascinating because God always speaks in Job 1 and 2, and Satan always responds. And that demonstrates God is never reacting. He is never responding. He is always initiating. He is always in control. And Satan is just his servant. And as a result of this, God sets up a trial to prove that Job truly is his servant, to prove that God's redemptive purposes in Job's life will not fail. And even though Satan does all kinds of things to put Job under pressure, to put him to the test, in the end, God is proven right because Job blesses God, showing that God's purposes never fail. He is sovereign, he is right in heaven because he is triumphant over all. So God's right in heaven. But what about on earth? That moves us to Job 3 and the rest of the book. In Job 3 and the rest of the book, the courtroom on earth asks the following question. Yeah, we know that God is right in heaven because he's sovereign, but is he also really good? Is he truly compassionate? Is he understanding? Is he right in that regard? And Job has some friends, and the wisest they ever were were when they were silent. But what God begins to demonstrate through them and to them is that he is right indeed in these regards as well. And part of that reason is because human wisdom doesn't know enough to actually be able to condemn God. And this demonstrates why you need a Bible. In fact, Job even helps us to understand that in Job chapter 28. Man can be smart. Job talks about that in the first part of the chapter, but where's wisdom found? Where can you find wisdom? And Job and his friends have illustrated Man can't figure it out. Here's the most important question. What in the world is going on in the world? How does God work? Is God right? Will you survive? What about eternity? These are the most important questions, questions that make the difference of life, death, and eternity. You need the answers to these. These aren't negotiable. They're not just nice. They're absolutely necessary. You have to have the answers to these. But guess what? Man by himself can never figure it out. The only one who has those answers is God. And because of that, this is what Job concludes. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We might have said, hey, I heard that in Proverbs. No, Proverbs is quoting from Job. And the reason that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom is because when you fear God and you revere him and you surrender your life to him and you listen to him and you don't negotiate with him and you don't try to override him with your own voice, finally, when you surrender like that to God, you listen to the one who knows what he's talking about and then you become wise. And within this, Job begins to hint at how God is good. As he's discussing things with his friends, he, he starts to have a wish that he says, God, in chapter 7, if you would just pardon my sin, because I know sin is the issue, and if you would forgive sins and pass over it, if you would do that, then I know you're good, because you can resolve the biggest things in this world, and therefore, my situation can and will be resolved. On top of that, later on, Job says, and God, I know you would be on my side and you would care for me if you would provide a mediator that was God and man, one that could put his hand on God, one that could put his hand on man, and that way I know this one is effective to mediate on my behalf and he understands what I'm going through. If you would do that, you're good because you care about me enough 
So he wants forgiveness of sins and a God-man mediator. And then Job makes another wish and he says, God, if you were all powerful and all good, then I know you would do this. And this would prove it without a shadow of doubt in my mind. That is, raise me from the dead and not just raise me from the dead in a glorified body, but actually re reconcile me to you so that you would call on me and I would answer you and you would bless me the work of your hands. If you could raise me from the dead like that, then I know you're good. What does that sound like? Sounds like the gospel. And of course, I think we all know that that's exactly what God intends to do. In fact, that's where the storyline of Job goes. You see, what ends up happening is that God intervenes and he reminds everybody, you don't have a right to condemn God. You don't have a right to question God. God is God. And as a result, God then is right. He's right in heaven and he's right on earth. He's right everywhere for all time. He restores things back to Job, and we might be confused by that. Why did he take it away if he's going to restore? Well, we know that God is good, and here's how the book ends. The book ends with Job dying, full of days, but dying. You say, how is that a good ending that Job dies? How is that a wonderful thing? Well, we remember Job wished that when he got to heaven, he would have his day in court, and not just any day in court, where God would forgive his sins by virtue of a God-man mediator, by virtue of a resurrection that glorifies him and reconciles him to God. He wanted that. That was his wish. That would prove that God is ultimately and definitively right. And so Job dies, and he gets his wish, and he goes to heaven, and he meets the God-man mediator, and he understands his sins are forgiven, and he understands that there's a resurrection, and he sees the rest of the story that unfolds for us through Genesis and beyond. That is how God introduces the Bible. He introduces the Bible with that goal in mind, with the power of the gospel in mind, and now we're going to see how God begins. And that takes us to the book of Genesis. In Genesis, we see that indeed God lays out a thesis. This is a thesis about him. This is about a thesis of, of his agenda for redemption. And ultimately, this is a thesis about his glory. And that gets us into a very important point. You see, we forget sometimes that God is the main character of the scripture. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Who is the main individual? Who is the central figure of scripture? It's not you and me. We weren't there in the beginning. We don't really matter in that sense. It is about God. And sometimes we are confused when we read the Bible because we're always thinking about, well, what about me? How does this apply to me? How does this work for me? What about me? How does this pertain to me? How is it relevant to me? Me, 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 me. Well, wait a minute. The reason we're confused is because the Bible isn't first and foremost about you or me. It's about God. He's the main character. He's the one who drives everything. This is about him being right. This is about his glory. It's about God himself. And that's what we see. And Genesis announces that agenda to us. In Genesis chapter one, we see the sovereignty of God. We see that he is the creator and everything else is creation. He is Lord over all. In the first chapter itself, we see that God is in control of every single space. He can he creates the light and the dark and the sky and the sea and the dry land and the sea. He's in control of every space and he controls what is in and fills those spaces. And so God is sovereign over every single thing, every single space and all that fills that space. He is sovereign over it all. He is the true king. His glory is over all. And you could think of it this way. 
When he speaks, it happens. That's what we see in Genesis chapter one. When he speaks, it happens. He says, let there be light. And when the words are spoken, the darkness doesn't come out and say, but I don't want there to be light. I like it dark. No, it just happens. Why? Because there is no battle. There is no contest. There is no opposition because God rules and he rules alone. He is infallible. He is omnipotent. He is unstoppable. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, that's why there is the Sabbath. Because on the Sabbath, everything that was created in the first six days of creation, because God is also over time, everything that is created is meant for his glory. That's why he rests, enjoys creation, and everything is sanctified for him. Everything on that day is set apart as holy for him. Everything is about his glory. And so God is totally sovereign, but at the same time, he's totally good. In Genesis chapter 2, we learn of how good and loving our God is as he ordains everything in this world. Every relationship is wonderful. Every relationship is fruitful. Every relationship is harmonious and unified. And we see it as he creates the world. It's a zoomed in day six. That's what happens in Genesis chapter two. And in this zoomed zoomed in of day six, what we observe is that creation is waiting for man. Creation, some things haven't sprouted yet because God has held back the rain and there is no man uh, present to till the ground. And You could think of it this way. Nowadays, we talk about tree huggers. These are people who want to take really, really good care of the earth. Sometimes they even worship the environment because they just try to honor it, because they view that we depend and we find our fulfillment in creation. Now, that's idolatrous and wrong. But back in the day, back in Genesis, back before the fall and before sin came into this world, what we observe is this. Creation is a man hugger. Creation waits for man. Creation depends on man for its fulfillment. Creation depends on man for its finishing. Creation depends on man and awaits man because man is the apex of creation. Everything has a beautiful relationship. And it's not just between man and creation. It's also between man and his wife. God creates a helpmate for man, puts man to sleep, takes something out of his side, and man for the first time waxes eloquent in poetry because of his absolute adoration of his wife. He says over and over, this one, this one, this one. Why? Because he recognizes the woman, that's the one for him. And that's the only one for him. That's the love of his life. And so everything in creation, man over creation and man with woman, all of it is designed to be in perfect love, to be in perfect harmony, to be in perfect unity, it's wonderful. And God demonstrates he is good and perfect in every way, in his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his love, in his holiness, everything. And it is all about his glory. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thinking Biblically podcast. To help support this ministry, please visit thinkbiblically.org forward slash donate. To learn more about the Masters University on campus and online undergraduate and graduate programs, visit masters.edu.